You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 3rd of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... We are up against powerful interest, a powerful machine and a powerful mayor. But I remembered something Martin Luther King said when I was very young. Faith, he said, is taking the first step when you can't see the staircase. Chicago's new mayor, my guests Mary Dijewski and George Brock will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including another twist and or turn in Venezuela, but are we actually getting anywhere? The ongoing global struggle against fake news and has the world's worst spy been apprehended at Donald Trump's Florida retreat? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dijewski, columnist with The Guardian and The Independent, and George Brock, visiting professor at City University in London. Welcome both. Uh, We will start in Venezuela, where one of its presidents has hurled a gauntlet at the feet of the other. Nicolas Maduro, hapless heir to the Chavez revolution, has revoked the parliamentary immunity of Juan Guaido, leader of the country's National Assembly, and the president recognised by most of Latin America and Europe and the United States. This move in theory makes possible the arrest of Guaido on the instructions of Maduro, though as we go to air, Guaido seems willing to call the bluff, describing Maduro as, quote, cowardly, miserable and murderous, unquote. Um, Mary, first of all, is is this just a warning shot from Maduro, or is Maduro serious? Might he actually contemplate uh, running in his rival for the job? Well, this is what remains to be seen, doesn't it, over the next few days, to see whether it's actual for real, or whether it's a sort of gesture just putting down an extra warning. Um, because it has to be said, you know, Guaido has actually enjoyed considerable amount of freedom, given the st- state of things in Venezuela. It is extraordinary that he is actually still in freedom, still talking, and has been able to travel and come back to the country. Um, So it does remain to be seen whether this is a sort of um, legalistic warning or whether he intends to act on it. But of course, if he were to act on it, then there's a sort of counter threat out from the United States, which says, leave this guy alone or else. And that, of course, could be another exercise of bluff. Um, George, Mary's quite right. It it, it is extraordinary that Juan Guaido uh, has been allowed the apparent leeway he has. But of course, the the point, the tragic point of the whole Venezuela thing is that it shouldn't be extraordinary that the leader of the National Assembly is allowed to say things in public and come and go as he pleases. This is pretty entry-level stuff. But... Wouldn't Maduro, if he does arrest Guaido, wouldn't he be almost daring other countries to take a more direct hand in Venezuela? I think much more to the point is that he would be daring the Venezuelan army, the pivot on which this situation Mm. really turns, to make a decision about whether or not they're going to back him or sack him, basically. Uh, Yes, outside powers may have some relevance and importance, but I think it's the Venezuelan army that is the really important thing here. And Mary rightly pointed out that Guaido has enjoyed this extraordinary amount of liberty. Well, I can only assume that he has enjoyed all this liberty because the army has said to Maduro, you can only go so far. 
And if you go over that line, then you're in real trouble. Mary, do you think that's right? Or do you think the army have already... I mean, you know, armies in similar situations do change their mind from time to time, which I guess is what Maduro was worried about. But so far, they've been, there's been some reports of desertions, but not certainly not of extremely senior figures. So far, at least, have, have the Venezuelan military picked their team? Well, this is one of the most interesting aspects of the whole thing ever since January, because essentially Venezuela since then has had two regimes in parallel. And the Guaido operation has the recognition as the legitimate president starting from the United States and then a whole other three dozen, four dozen countries followed, including Britain, followed the United States in recognizing Guaido as legitimate president. Um, But Maduro wouldn't give up and the army stuck with him. And that's where we are today. And so I sort of tend to tend to agree that the army has already picked its side. Um, And in a way, I mean, I sort of, I was very uneasy, I have to say, at the very beginning, when the United States decided to recognise, as it were, a rival president in Venezuela, because it seemed to me that the, the, the legitimacy of that was deeply questionable. And UN recognition, so far as I know, has not been withdrawn from Maduro, which leaves him in that international context as being the legitimate leader of Venezuela. Um, and I sort of think that the United States pushed it really a bit far, a bit early, it wasn't just the United States, of course. Most of Europe and Latin America, indeed, now recognises Guaido. Yes, but I think, would they have done that unless the United States had led? Very probably not. Um, George, it is the evergreen question over the last few years uh, of the Venezuelan crisis, but is there any sign at all that Maduro, uh, whether you sympathise with him or not, has a coherent and plausible plan for a way out of this? Because I think it's, it's always worth revisiting the fact that this situation as well as being tragic and wretched is just ridiculous there is no reason at all why venezuela is not a wealthy prosperous orderly and functional country and i think at some point uh, the person in charge has to take a measure of responsibility for the fact that it isn't oh i think he should take full responsibility for that without question i don't think he's had any kind of plan for some time there's not been much evidence of it they have no uh, they have a kind of magical fantasy almost parallel uh, system going on. Don't forget that the body that took away Guaido's immunity was called the Constituent Assembly, which was only set up because the National Assembly, otherwise known as the Venezuelan Parliament, is controlled by the opposition since the last election. If you are at that kind of stage, you don't really have a plan for staying in power. You, you, you get down on your knees regularly and just pray that the army will stay with you for one reason or another and that something will happen to Guaido or Guaido will fade away. But none of that is going to happen. I think, I think Maduro will go down eventually. It's just very difficult to tell exactly what the end game is going to be and how long it's going to take. 
depressingly, I suspect we're going to have ample opportunity to come back to that story. Uh, so we'll look now at France, which is discovering that legislating against fake news is less straightforward than it might look. And that said, acknowledging that if you look at it at all, you swiftly discover how not straightforward it is. France passed a law in December insisting that online political campaigns declare who paid for them and how much they paid for them. As an unintended consequence of this, however, Twitter has now knocked back a French government voter registration campaign, claiming it could not possibly think of any way to carry it without breaking French law. Um, Mary, do we think Twitter is, is genuinely hamstrung by this conundrum, or are they perhaps trying to make something of a point to France here? Well, I did rather think that maybe they were trying to make something of a point, um, but it also struck me that this is this is where you get to um, when you take um, technicalities and algorithms and I have to say things like artificial intelligence too far. You look at the absolute minute detail and you look at how they how they sort of how those details come together in a computer program and you say nope you can't do it. Um, rather than looking at the sort of spirit of the thing and what its intention is. Um, So I think um, it shows a lot about the um, absurd absurd lengths to which all these things have got. Um, George, the the, the French law in itself is... Is it a good idea? And if not, is there the kernel of a good idea in there? It's a bad idea, which strangely enough has taken rather good form, (laughs) actually, because in fact their requirement to say that political ads should be more transparent, in other words, principally you should know who paid for them. That seems reasonable. That's actually a very good idea. Mm -hmm. When they started to launch the idea of, quote-unquote, a law against fake news, my heart sank. Legislating against fake news is almost certainly going to backfire in one way or another. Actually, this episode is not an example of backfiring. As I say, the transparency of political ads is fine. And if Twitter want to operate in France, and that's what the French law says, that's what Twitter should be doing. And I doubt they really have a very good excuse. So if they go to court, the government should say, OK, Twitter, why can't you do this? Um, Mary, as, as George points out, any legislation or regulation of this sort is always it's going to come down to a fundamental point of a government telling news outlets uh, media outlets what they can and can't say and and that can get you obviously to an unhappy place pretty quickly but are we not dealing with a threat which is is something entirely new that simply did not exist 20 or 30 years ago I mean obviously it has always been possible as long as there's been a printing press uh, to print up and disseminate whatever absolute honking nonsense you dreamt up but the means of disseminating it are now so much more accessible and so much more efficient Um, Can we rely uh, on people to figure it out for themselves? Because so far, at least, the evidence would seem to suggest that we cannot. Well, I mean, I absolutely agree with George that I think that the um, the source of political advertising and funding for it, that that absolutely needs to be transparent. But I also have to say, on the other side, that this whole hue and cry about fake news and about the apparent inability of, um, as it's put about, the majority of our fellow citizens to 
tell the difference. Um, I've seen surveys and I was actually at an event at um, the London School of Economics quite recently um, where a survey had been done which actually showed people were a lot um, more competent, including young people, um, much more competent at telling the difference between things that were real and things that were um, not real and things that had been put out in order to deceive them. So I tend to think that this is actually a problem that at the moment we're exaggerating hugely. Just to follow that up though, Mary, isn't the problem though that it doesn't need to be a majority uh, of people believing any old nonsense they see on the internet? I think, you know, as has been the experience of many advanced democracies in recent years, even if, and I think this figure's lowballing it, it's 5% of people who will just believe some inflammatory twaddle online that'll do won't it well I, th- I think it depends awfully what what the context is that you're looking at because if you're talking about people voting which is we, we, which is where some of this has originated was with voters being deceived or manipulated then I think you can talk about a majority actually showing common sense where we've recently seen a case of a minority having a completely disproportionate effect and for very um, malign ends has been the whole anti-vaccination campaign where indeed a very small number of people have managed to influence more people which have influenced even more people to very very bad effect. Well, That's actually not a bad example to look at uh, George because I think that the difficulty with fake news and politics is that politics is at many levels a, a, a subjective proposition whereas something like vaccines that's just not that science it is what it is. Should social media platforms that, and well, actually, should it be made illegal to broadcast material of that sort? I mean, stuff like anti-vaxxer stuff is obvious, demonstrable nonsense, uh, and it ha- obvious with obvious, demonstrable, malign effects to the wider community. People will actually die as a consequence of people believing this. I, I, I completely agree with you that it is a very good example and it is far more serious. It is turning out to be extraordinarily difficult for researchers to prove that fake news affects people's voting decisions. There are a lot of people trying and they're finding it quite difficult because fake news tends to appeal to people who are going in that direction anyway. Whereas, as you say, anti-vaxxing is, is a, you can have a measurable effect. People fall ill. They yeah. may die. They're at risk of dying. Um, I, I, the very last thing I want to do is to stop anyone, as it were, anyone's right, curtail anyone's rights of free speech. It could be that we will reach that situation in anti-vaccination stuff if we can't use all the other instruments that are available to try and wind this down. Uh, by winding it down, I mean obviously uh, counter good information, you know, bad information with good information. Uh, wake up the platforms to their responsibilities. The very big platforms are getting a bit better at this. The absolutely worst in anti-vaccination is YouTube, owned by Google, not by Facebook. A lot of people concentrate on Facebook, but actually YouTube is probably the worst for anti-vaccination. So I hope that we will just get more sensible and better at it. But if we can't, then the law will need to be used. Uh, Mary, there's another experiment being floated by WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, and this is ahead of India's elections and, and fake news disseminated by WhatsApp in India 
I mean, it depends where you allocate blame for these things, but it, it certainly has played a part in events which led to entirely innocent people being killed. Um, they are launching a fact-checking service, but it relies on people actually sending stuff for verification, which obviously people who aren't interested in facts aren't going to do. What I kind of wonder about, and, and this is the, the pessimistic analysis, is that it, have we discovered something, i.e. social media, which just taps into that uh, most fundamental of, of human flaws, which is that just that people believe what they want to believe? Well, in that sense, I think you're probably right. Um, and social media has an, has an effect of sort of augmenting things that are there already. Um, but I'd also say in terms of sort of correcting um, false things that are out there... Um, Twitter and social media generally have actually been quite good at that in the sense that they've given an instant platform to people who really do know to contradict things that are actually wrong on social media. And so, you know, as you say, then you have a choice of which to believe and who to believe. But there is a, a possibility of instant rebuttal for a very wide audience, which is something quite new. And I actually think that's something quite good. The trouble is I've seen it myself in a very minor way. I, this is a while ago, and I can't even remember what the thing was, but there, there was some Yahoo with a following who should have known better kicking off on Twitter about something they thought was important and why isn't the BBC covering this and why isn't the mainstream media covering this. And helpfully, I did provide links to the coverage of the event. I think it was a demonstration of some sort by the BBC and by literally every newspaper in Britain. But they were still absolutely adamant that the media was not covering it. But the problem it, it with WhatsApp particularly is that WhatsApp doesn't, doesn't operate like that. Op WhatsApp is closed groups. Indeed. And there are 200 million WhatsApp users in India. This is why this, all this attention is being concentrated on there because the election is coming up. That makes it WhatsApp biggest single biggest market in the world, I think. And uh, therefore, the closed group problem is the heart of this difficulty. It's not open. It's not really a social. It is a social platform, but it's a micro social platform. Very easy for poison to be distributed that way. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Mary Dijewski and George Brock. Coming up next, Chicago has a new mayor. In the second episode of our mini-series, we peek into the snug cabins, well-kitted kitchen and memorabilia-filled gym to see what serving on Finnish icebreaker Contio is really like. Many seamen see icebreaking as a career pinnacle. An icebreaker captain accepts ultimate responsibility for a ship which routinely faces hazards that occur only in the nightmares of most sailors. This is a difficult job. And when you can handle a difficult job, it, it gives you satisfaction. You have to be a bit, not crazy, but you have to like to assist other vessels with this big icebreaker. It's fun. It's demanding, but it's really nice when you can handle it. Icebreakers Life on Board, playing now in the film section at monocle.com.
And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and George Brock. Now, like perhaps no other city hall in the United States, Chicago's attracts big characters. The post of Chicago mayor has been held by some extraordinary, in one sense of the word or another, characters. The astonishing crook William Big Bill Thompson, whose campaign for his second term was underwritten by Al Capone. Anton Chernak, a fatal casualty of an attempt to assassinate President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Two ebullient Richard Daly's and most recently President Barack Obama's former Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel. This lineage has now been joined by Laurie Lightfoot, who won yesterday's runoff against Tony Preckwinkle. Mayor-elect Lightfoot is Chicago's first black female mayor, and so far as we know, its first gay mayor. Um, Mary, this is something I've spoken about before on Monocle 24, what I'm, what I'm trying to turn into a thing. I'm trying to make it a, a, a political trend, the Trump effect, whereby the, the, the lasting legacy uh, of his presidency will be uh, governor's mansions, city halls, congressional seats all over the United States filled by absolutely the last people he wants to see in them. <laughs> is this, I, I'm not familiar with, with Laurie Lightfoot's uh, personal motivations for seeking office. I don't know whether she took one look at Donald Trump and thought, right, enough of this, but is it a thing, the Trump effect, do you think? Well, I think it's probably had two effects. One of them is to attract um, people with big characters who feel that that is, in a way, a sort of qualification for office. Um, and the other th- thing I would say is the the change in the political discourse in America. I mean, people say, oh, you know, this is, this is just a temporary thing, all this tweeting and this sort of um, spontaneous um, use of language that is very undiplomatic, very um, outside the former political tradition. Um, so I think those those are two changes which Trump has actually wrought and which could well stick. Um, but also, you you do have to say, as was said in the introduction, that um, Chicago <laughs> Chicago is Chicago, um, and the mayor of Chicago, um, you do sort of need to be quite a, quite a character. In a way, the exception to that. Um, was the last mayor, Ram Emanuel, because he he had he gave the impression of being quite um, sort of reticent and quiet, and he basically inherited the job by virtue of having been Obama's right hand man, um, and he got two terms in office. But he wasn't a natural political campaigner, as you know. I have the impression that Laurie Lightfoot is exactly that. Uh, she certainly, well, she certainly has taken to it, and that that does prompt the question, George. This this was this is the first time she has sought uh, elected office. She's a former federal prosecutor, which is obviously a, a better qualification for high office than, for example, bankrupting casinos and hosting a game show. But uh, are we nonetheless keen uh, on this idea that Mary was suggesting there that? I mean, it's never been unheard of in the United States, but people are thinking, well, if I'm going to go into politics, why not just start in a big job? Is is running a country or running a state or running a, running a city actually a good political apprenticeship, or should we have expected people to have done something first? Well, there are plenty of things where you can say experience is a good idea. Um, Most of them, not, for example. I mean, we, no, we, we, no, we, no, no, no. We, actually, I, mean, I was the, about to say that politics, in fact, it probably isn't one really? of them. Really? Because I, I just um, I, the, the same the same people that you always hear decrying professional politicians, you ne- you never see them trusting their dentistry to enthusiastic amateurs, do you? No, well, that was my point. If you're an airline pilot, experience is a really good idea. Politics is not the same thing, and shouldn't it be? You, Look, a certain amount of experience and wisdom around the place that you you can call on, very good idea. <laughs> now, there may be a Trump effect or a Trump thing, 
But you're actually, uh, Lightfoot is the product of a much wider development, which is people are wanting to vote for candidates, never mind whether under the old distinction they're from the left or the right, who don't belong to what people think is the establishment. Now, people differ in imagining what that is, but essentially people who can present themselves as outsiders, and we're seeing this effect all over the world, are doing very well. And Lightfoot was not... Bear in mind that the other candidate, the other last candidate in the final, so to speak, in Chicago was another black female politician, and Lightfoot beat her because the, her rival was, did look like an insider, is one. Mary, is that something that's actually new, though, or something that's magnified? I can't recall a time, especially in the United States, where any politicians ever run for office going, yep, I'm part of the establishment. <laughs> Mr. Beltway, that's me. I'm right in there, born and raised. Yes, I mean, the the, the anti-Washington um, platform is a very familiar thing right through American politics. Um, so that, to an extent, is true. But I think, um, as George was sort of implying, it's the extent of how far you present yourself as being outside um, and not having political experience. I mean, I agree. I think you know, not having political experience not only can be seen to be quite a good thing if you're a voter um, because you don't seem to be sort of contaminated by, by, by the, everything that is about holding power, um, but also you, it's, it, it's sort of fine so long as you've got a decent machine to govern with. And, you know, for all the sort of um, adverse reviews of um, Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London, um, what was also said was that while he might not have actually done a huge amount, he had a machine that worked underneath him. Um, and so the place functioned reasonably okay um, and Chicago I think has a pretty um, well you could say famous or notorious um, machine of government <laughs> well finally tonight uh, and I'm extremely fond of this story uh, it's another which is to say yet another story which had it occurred during any other US presidency would have been a news cycle dominating scandal as opposed to merely a candidate for the list of the dozen stupidest things to have occurred in the previous 24 hours but for what it may be worth. A woman has been apprehended at President Donald Trump's ghastly Florida compound, Mar-a-Lago, carrying two Chinese passports, four mobile phones, a laptop, an external hard drive, and a thumb drive loaded with malware, as one so often brings with them when visiting a resort to use the swimming pool, which was the line she gave the receptionist. Um, George, I'll, I'll, I'll punt this one to you first. Do you want to take a wild guess as to what has actually gone on here? I think we're probably talking about a deranged fantasist here. And, 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 the, and the woman with the laptop? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're all deranged fantasists down there, as you might say. I don't claim any special expertise in intelligence, but generally speaking, the impression I have is that the intelligence services of the People's Republic of China are fairly highly rated. So if they wanted to infect the presidential computers <laughs> or whatever it was that might be supposed to have been going on here, I don't think they'd have done it like that. 
So I think this was just freelance lunacy. Is, is it possible, Mary, and this is my own pet theory, which I'm developing as, as I sit here, that, that perhaps this is a, a Chinese operative under deep cover, but they've, they've maybe just been in Florida that little bit too long <laughs> and, and they've, they've gone kind of native. Because re- really all this needed is, 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 is a, a pet alligator under one arm and it, it, is, it is full Florida bingo, isn't it? A bit too much of the Florida sun. Well, I have to say that my, my first response to this was, first of all, to, 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 to ridicule it and say, well, you know, what on earth did anybody think if they were embarking on any serious intelligence operation? Um, my second thought was that um, given the political context in the United States over the last two years, um, that if this had happened to be a Russian um, kitted out with even a fraction of what this woman seems to have had, this would have been all over the top of the news, um, certainly all over the United States, um, if not um, across Europe. I don't think Russia needs to spy on Donald Trump, though, do they? Well, I mean, the third thing, <laughs> if you really want to be super conspiratorial about this, oh, you would say that actually it was a Russian under Chinese cover trying to get into Trump's estate. What if it was a Chinese spy under Russian cover? I, I've really no idea what we're even talking about. Or, at a, this North point. Co- or a North Korean, perhaps. <laughs> Um, that would be obviously excellent. George, in, in an attempt to try and find a serious point to this story, which is very possibly uh, an enterprise which is a waste of everybody's time... Um, I'll bear the, that in mind when I answer. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is Mar-a-Lago actually a, a serious security risk? Trump is still running this as a functioning business, and he is clearly, as he so often does, leveraging his presidency to improve the, the profits of his own enterprises. If anybody can just wander in or out of there... Uh, it, I mean, it can't, the Secret Service can't be happy about this. Read, reading the story did make me wonder exactly how they are running the security there. Because at one point, a spokesman for the Secret Service said, people are allowed to go into the club as members or potential members. What the Secret Service does is check on what it is they're carrying. Okay. And I thought, that they, ca- they cannot mean that for real. That cannot be serious. That would be a hopeless way of protecting a president. Is the Secret Service covertly encouraging assassins at Mar-a-Lago, I'm, I'm now wondering. Okay, well, I mean, th- th- that, that, that is a conspiracy theory to toy with. I mean, I, I, I don't know. That, that you could also argue, Mary, that this, there's something actually quite nice about this, that this is, this is a, a, a president willing to sort of interact with the American public. Well, I mean, he's certainly used it partly to his advantage because when there was so much negative publicity about him, then various supposedly ordinary members of the um, public who happened to be... Um, dining in Mar-a-Lago and had Trump and his family on an adjacent table said oh it was wonderful to see the family and how normal they were and how they behaved as sort of down-home Americans and it was excellent publicity for them. A reminder unfortunately as time runs out that we never did quite figure out what was going on with the woman who founded that Chinese massage parlour at which Robert Kraft was apprehended selling a Chinese businessman access to Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Again uh Ten of these get sort of broken and overlooked every single day. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of today's show. George Brock and Mary Dijewski, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz. A studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. Daniel's back with The Entrepreneurs. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 